0: Hello and welcome to How To Fix, a podcast all about the -the behind-the-scenes innovations that are solving society's big questions. I'm your host, Rich Williams, and across this series, we will be talking to the cutting-edge researchers who are taking ideas from the lab to the street to make this world a better place. Now, no matter who you are or where in the world you're listening to this, we all do one thing more than any other each day, and that's breathe. In fact, it works out around 10 litres per minute. That's over 14,000 litres of air every day. Every minute, our intake is the equivalent to 10 bottles of Coca-Cola. And during a year, we breathe in over two Olympic swimming pools worth of air. But if it's the thing we do most, are we paying enough attention to make sure the quality of the air around us is as good as it can be? How problematic are the vehicle fumes in the air that our kids are breathing in when they walk to school? Have we been overlooking the air quality in our homes as we go about our daily lives? And what has the recent pandemic taught us about the importance of ventilating our schools and workplaces? A recent report from the European Environment Agency says that Europe is failing its children when it comes to air quality. And while many of our cities like Bradford now have clean air zones and London has expanded its low emission zones, others like Leeds abandoned plans during the pandemic. To say we all want our air quality to improve is a total no-brainer. But if that means a change in lifestyle and some of the comforts we've become accustomed to, is it likely to happen? Fortunately, I have three high-quality guests on the way who are leading the fight against low-quality air.
1: The enforcement cameras are on, and the world's biggest clean air zone covering almost all of Greater London is now live, meaning it'll cost £12.50 to drive into and around the city if your car is a high polluter.
2: We are sort of in a cloud of, of horrible smoke from the moment we leave our house all the way to school try to overlook it maybe sometimes as well you think oh you know well there's cars everywhere there's pollution everywhere so what can I do It's been immensely stressful it's caused a lot of sleepless nights It's a road where so many buses and traffic have to come through and there's, there's literally no other way to get here so you kind of feel like a bit of a hostage to it
0: I walk down this street every single day and I can tell you that the air is so toxic you can taste it
1: I'm quite clear, though, that although this was a difficult decision, it's the right one, uh, and it's vital to our city. Why? Because seeing the evidence in relation to the consequences of uh, air pollution, around 4,000 premature deaths a year, children with stunted lungs forever...
0: Today, we welcome to our roundtable discussion from the University of Leeds, Associate Professor of Atmospheric Composition from the School of Earth and Environment, Dr. Jim McQuaid. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Pleasure. From the School of Civil Engineering, Professor of Environmental Engineering for Buildings, Professor
2: Kath Noakes. Hi, Rich. Nice to be here.
0: And Associate Professor in ITS, that's the Institute for Transport Studies, researching the impact of road transport on the environment, Dr. James Tate. Hi, thanks a lot. So, so much to talk about here. Quality of air in the homes, the role that transport has to play. But, Jim, let's just start with you and schools, because I know you've been looking into that. feels a, a good place to start. It's nice to walk the kids to school on a lovely day, breathe in some lovely quality air. But um, how good is that air we're actually breathing in? Well,
1: it, it depends exactly where you're actually walking. Either side of the road can make a significant difference depending on where the wind's blowing. We'll always stay away from the main roads. The reason for working with the children and particularly primary school children is at that age they're developing. So that's when their lungs are most vulnerable to attack from air pollution. And I use the word attack because that's exactly what it happens. These are poisons that they're breathing in. Work done in Bradford showed that a third of asthma cases in primary school children was directly linked to air quality. And when you say that to people, and the people who are who, you know have some objections to the clean air zone, their eyes light up. They they really start to pay attention to that because you know. This day and age, if parents don't have a child with asthma, their child friend will have asthma. so it's it's it was uncommon when I was at school, but now it's it's everywhere, so people are very, very aware of
0: it. I was going to ask that when you said about a third of asthma cases being related to air quality. That's something that's getting increasingly worse, isn't it? Oh yes, indeed. and and the you know the ability to you know make these measurements
1: of the children as they're growing up, and people being much more aware of it does make it, you know, it's, it's more prevalent and people are spotting it. And it, and it's not, it's just becoming a commonplace, you know, for people to have. an asthma is an illness, you know, affects people's quality of life. You know, they can't do sports and these sorts of things. And these are the sorts of things that make kids happy. And if they're happy, they're enjoying school. And then their educational attainment will be
0: impacted because they're, they're a little bit more miserable at school. You mentioned clean air zones. So just explain exactly what a clean air zone is, how that works, and the research you've been doing on it. So a clean air zone is exactly what it says on the tin.
1: It's where an area has been identified as suffering from you know, reduced air quality. So Bradford was one of them. And that's specifically because a lot of it's because of its geography. It lives in a bowl, um, the, the geography around there so it's to actually try and reduce the amount of air pollution that's being emitted and they focus on vehicles that can be quite high emitters so lorries buses and bus you know areas that are using or vehicles that are using a lot of the uh, streets and the city area a lot and depending on the different levels of clean air zones so some of them Bradford actually includes taxis and private hires it doesn't include People's personal private vehicles. That's one thing, you know, that's a main thing that people don't often understand. And then there's a charge put on entering these areas and that charge can be alleviated if people get change their vehicles so the vehicle fleet in bradford has changed dramatically and that changed in, in in the lead up to the clean air zones so there were grants provided for taxi drivers and delivery drivers to actually go to hybrid and ideally electric vehicles so they if you've got electric vehicles you're not paying that charge so that's the motivation for it and it's already having effects. The preliminary analysis from Bradford has
0: shown a, you know, a reduction. Presumably, whenever anything like that is introduced, it has positive effects. But some people aren't always going to be happy about that initially. It's kind of a, about making change over a period of time. So with the studies that you've seen, what has the improvement been? Because being able to show the benefits is how you get everyone on board, right?
1: Oh, ex- Exactly. You see the positive benefits. So you're seeing the reduction in you know, air pollution or the improvement in air quality and people do see that and there are measurements available around Bradford you know the council has a lot of monitoring you know they advertise this and let people know it's it's happening i mean you know just the reduction in the number of the sort of dirty vehicles becomes very visible around the city so yeah it's always about putting the positive on it because there are a lot of you know there was a probably not not as many as people think because the negative opinions in Bradford but the negative opinions will always make the news, but they're very, very small number of people now because more and more people are seeing the benefit of them. They're, you know they're very limited in the number of people who are still objecting to it. and that's just you know that's just anecdotal evidence from the number of complaining emails that you know our colleagues at the council get. It's very little now, whereas, you know, at the start, it was, it was significant and there were groups, but people are getting on board. Now they see the numbers, you know, if people see the data and they see the reduction. And also the fact that I said about, you know, the number of primary school children who are affected by air pollution, if that's going down, you know, people can see the benefit and they, they just don't realise because you can't see air pollution apart from a particularly dirty vehicle where you see the exhaust coming out, but most of the time it's invisible. You know, you can't see it. You need special instruments to measure it. So, you know, it's not on people's radar. But actually when the data comes out, you know, they start to appreciate that and they know it's affecting their children. It's making their children healthier.
0: And in terms of that, that's a longer-term assessment, I guess, from a health point of view. You can monitor levels of air pollution quite easily by going there on a day, any given day, and finding out what it is. In terms of the, the health of the, the kids, that takes a little bit longer.
1: Indeed, it does. But work we're doing in Leeds, so we've got a network of centres across Leeds, and they've been out for about a year now. And I'm working with the council who are looking at uh, GP admissions and things like that. So there's there's now enough data to look and see how they fit together. And that's, you know, a year to see a noticeable change, it may not be a big change, but you know, a, a small change that we can see that we would say is sort of statistically significant. That I could, you know, sell to people. Not, you know, it's not just me sticking my finger in the air, but actually, this is the data and this is the health data. GP admissions, accident and emergency cases and things like that. You know, we we've got all this data available. So it's now mixing up all the different types of data, not just the measurements that we're making, but the health data and all these sorts of social data. And that's that's sort of the exciting thing. It's not just about making the
0: measurements, it's about having the impact. And that's great to hear because Catherine James, you probably have an opinion on this as well. I think sometimes When we look at these issues, we think this is going to be a a long, long road to fixing these problems. But actually to hear that things can be done, that there are plans in place and you can see a quick benefit, not the final destination, but that you can see over a short period of time that there are really big benefits to these kind of things.
3: Yeah, like working particularly with in Bradford, so the clean air zone in Bradford. So Jim and I are working with a a team called the Born in Bradford team and their health experts so they've got like they're getting daily data on kind of gp admissions hospital admissions related to asthma heart attacks strokes and it's just that like level of detail that's like it's quick as well whereas pre sometimes research can be a bit slow so it slows down kind of trying to be able to detect an impact and what we want to do in bradford is see that air quality is improving and then you know, learn lessons from that and communicate that with other councils around the UK as well. So if they're launching clean air zones or thinking of launching a clean air zone, they've got that evidence to kind of fall back on.
0: We'll come back to Rhodes shortly, but Kath, I just want to bring you in on this. What about elsewhere? Because we think of it maybe being an outdoor problem, but inside the home is just as important. And there are things you've been researching there.
2: Yeah, so the indoor air quality is a really important part of it, because if you think about your day, you probably spend 80 or 90% of your time in an indoor environment. So that might be your home. That's a big environment you're in a lot, but it might also be school or workplace or social spaces or even side transport inside a car or inside a bus. So an awful lot of the air that we breathe happens when we're inside. And of course, that inside air is not completely disconnected from the outside air. The outside air comes into buildings. In many buildings, it's not filtered in any way, so you're still breathing those same traffic pollutants, those same outdoor pollutants when you're indoors. But you're also breathing a whole raft of other new sources as well. So we create lots of sources ourselves inside buildings. So sometimes it's the building, it's the you know the, the paint on the walls, the carpets in that building. They will emit various chemicals as part of the manufacturing processes that have been put into them. We cook you know, so we're emitting particles, we're emitting chemical pollutants when we're cooking, we clean, we use personal care products, and all of these can add to the soup that's in our indoor environments. And then on top of that, we've learned a lot over particularly, I think COVID-19 has shown us this, around biological pollutants. So the fact that, We're recognising that we transmit diseases because we breathe and that happens. We we exhale particles containing viruses. And when you're in closed spaces and poorly ventilated in closed spaces, you're more likely to transmit that infection. And it becomes then quite complicated because if you're trying to deal with outdoor pollution and indoor pollution and outdoors, if you think about it, the pollution or the air moves up and down the streets, Indoors, every space is different, every room is different. So in the same building, you can have a clean space and a polluted space. So we have to think much more carefully about what happens indoors in environments.
0: You mentioned the pandemic and discussions about ventilations that were had there. Can we send kids to school or is the ventilation not good enough? And in hospitals and places of work, do you think in some ways it's put it slightly more to the forefront of the agenda?
2: I think it has. I think, it, you know, one of the things we discovered during the pandemic was, you know, people asked many times, how good is ventilation in buildings? And we started to realise that for the vast majority of buildings, we just don't know. And then we were involved in projects where we were measuring this. And you can do a, a very simple sort of proxy measurement where you use a, a what's called a carbon dioxide monitor. And that measures, when we breathe out, we all breathe out carbon dioxide um, and The better the ventilation, the lower the carbon dioxide concentration. So if you have very poor ventilation, you get very high carbon dioxide concentrations in buildings. So you can use a monitor to give you an idea of how good the ventilation is. And when we started to look at this in different spaces, we're finding that loads of spaces don't have good enough ventilation and they don't even meet the building regulations that they're supposed to meet. So we find across hospitals, across schools, homes, workplaces transport or you name it you find spaces that are poorly ventilated and often people are just not aware of this.
0: That sounds like a total minefield I mean you know Jim's doing his work over there in Bradford do a clean air zone we can clean this up but but this all these different spaces and different places and different things going on in those environments it's it's almost needle in haystack. It
2: it is a minefield but as I say I mean actually there are things you can do so these carbon dioxide sensors are, are really quite cheap sensors and they allow you to see the air so actually, if you put them in a room, you, people can look at them and suddenly go, "Oh yes, I can respond." So we've we've had studies where we put them into schools, and in fact, it, it you know influenced a, a, the government rolling out CO two monitors into classrooms in schools because it allows you to then respond. It's not a perfect solution, but if you see the calm dioxide going up too far, you can open a window or do something about it. It doesn't work in every space though, so spaces which are difficult to ventilate you know in an ideal world you would upgrade the ventilation sometimes that's quite straightforward other times that costs more money but there are things you can do like you can put air cleaners in so it doesn't remove the carbon dioxide but it will remove particles in the air it'll reduce infection risk in those spaces and they can be quite a simple intervention again we've been trialing those in primary schools in in Bradford at the moment which has allowed us to to look into you know the practicalities as well as how well they work. And yeah, they do work pretty well.
0: And presumably there's existing spaces and then there is going to be new spaces that are built. So having that at the forefront of people designing buildings that are then going to be populated.
2: Yeah, totally. And and I think one of the big challenges we've got going forward there, both for new buildings and for how we improve existing buildings, is how we balance the air quality with other things like energy and net zero. So you can see, you know, If we go back to the middle of the pandemic, everybody was trying to open the windows and ventilate buildings. We've now got cost of living crisis and everybody wants to shut their windows and keep the buildings warm. And actually, there is a challenge. It's an engineering challenge there. And in fact, it was raised by the chief medical officer in his annual report this year on air pollution. As one of the big challenges to deal with is that ability to design buildings that are well ventilated and comfortable and energy efficient at the same time. But there are technologies in there that we can use uh, already and we can adapt them and uh, improve our buildings.
0: Uh, you mentioned the report on air pollution. Chris Whitty, Chief Medical Officer, it's, it's, a, it's a mere 366 pages long. So I thought I'd <laughs> spare everyone the, uh, me going through it all. What are those key findings that we should be looking at from that?
2: It is a bit of a beast of a report, isn't it? But yeah, I I think it was great because it has covered the whole breadth of air pollution. So it didn't just talk about outdoors, it talked about indoors as well. One of the things it highlighted was actually, we are improving outdoor air pollution. And it has, you know, although there are still areas where there are problems, it is improving. But what that means is actually a bigger proportion of our air pollution is now indoors. So we have to think about that as well. And it, it highlighted some of these things and highlighted the need for Connectedness across how we plan and develop things, and also highlighted, particular around indoor environments, that individuals you know, in a public space often have very little control. So we need to make sure that the, this is embedded properly into guidance and regulation, so that people can be confident of the air that they're breathing in different spaces.
0: James, let's talk about transport because that kind of sits in the middle. It's both indoor and outdoor. What is contributing to the deterioration of air quality?
3: It's not deteriorating. It's actually, well, the report shows it's actually has been improving. It's just <laughs> that's been a state that's having really, really bad kind of health effects, particularly on, as we talked about, kind of young people and children particularly. But um, yeah, there's good news, like road transport, after a, a bit of a battle with research and evidence against the motor industry i think we think back to a few years before the pandemic there was the diesel gate and the kind of vw scandals where yeah manufacturers were getting vehicles to pass tests but on the road were behaving very differently that battle has been won to some extent obviously we can always do more but they are the newest generation of vehicles that are coming on the roads, whether they be, even whether they be big diesel vehicles, diesel cars, they do have very sophisticated emission controls on them now. So particle filters, other filters that, and catalysts that strip out some of the, the kind of the gases that are, are noxious to us. There's a change there. I think the report highlights actually we've made gains in road transport. There's a lot of electrification happening in road transport, actually, across the board. We also need to look at other sectors. So railway stations, a lot of diesel trains out there. They're kind of enclosed environments that a lot of people live, work, breathe and and, and pass through. So I think we need to think quite holistically. For me, railway stations is a real kind of it's quite they're the points in a city that probably have the highest levels of air pollution in and around for various reasons. Uh, and in the past it's been because there's been a lot of buses and they've been quite polluting diesel buses. there's been a lot of taxes, diesel taxes added to by the kind of the trains passing through the station. So now with clean air zones, clean clean air zones have really helped councils in a way be like a lever to force operators to change their vehicle fleets to be cleaner, either be the newest, cleaner, Diesel vehicles, a bit of jargon, the kind of Euro 6 standard, or ideally be electrified. Um, So that's kind of that's happening. We're seeing the biggest change at those hotspots. So we're seeing big improvements in air pollution that's been measured in those areas, particularly where actions like that have been taken. And in terms of the electrification
0: of cars, there is an infrastructure element to this as well, which is about putting that infrastructure in place so that people can shift from more polluting cars to electric cars that
3: pollute less. Yeah, that's right. There's an equity issue here. So more affluent people that have drives and garages, it's easier for those people to run and operate an electric vehicle cheaper. So uh, over four years, it's likely if you were looking at running a new car now, well, yeah, it probably would would be cheaper if you could charge at home slowly overnight it would be cheaper for you to run an electric car. But if you live on a terraced street or in a flat, then using fast charging stations, less so. So there's there's more that we could do there actually in terms of kind of grants for kind of helping that change. Cars is it's quite we have an electric network. We need to make some changes to it and an adaptation. But we have that there already. There's actually more challenges for if you're a, a big truck company or a bus operator, because you've got a Think about substations and various things. If you want to charge a fleet of 100 double-decker buses overnight, you need to change the local kind of electric grid. and, And that's actually proving a challenge as well and has been highlighted as a big area that we need to work with national grid and make those changes.
0: In terms of people's attitudes towards transport, I mean, Jim, you mentioned about attitudes towards the clean air zone. That Actually, people want to see that. People want to see the benefits of it. Is that the case as well with changing transport? Are people... Generally, a bit reliant on what they've always known and what they're used to, and the comfort that that affords them. Or do you see from research that there is a willingness, a want to to improve things here?
3: I've seen both sides actually. I think th- from the pandemic, there was a real aspiration to kind of hope that people were learning to kind of walk and cycle more, and people were seeing the benefit of that kind of physical activity and how it was good for them, you know, to get out, but also from a from their mental health point of view. And we were really hoping that that, that would would carry on, and and I think it is to some extent. I think there's just some challenges like the seasons, the weather changes. I mean, it's been choking people-
0: it down all day. <laughs> we're recording yeah, this. But- it's not been not been the best bike friendly day, has it?
3: But it's just like good good habits, right? So you, you develop a habit, and then it rains, and then winter comes, and then it's trying to get people to pick that up again the year after. But you know, every time I used to travel down with work and go like take a bike down on the train and cycle through London. There was always just like new bits of infrastructure and it felt like it was kind of getting safer. And I think other cities around the UK are kind of picking up on that and that experience. We don't necessarily need to have a big kind of cost benefit analysis of what's the benefit of a cycle lane or, you know, a segregated cycle lane or people are doing it based on, well, this is that is obviously going to make an improvement if it's put in the right place, connecting schools with residential areas, universities. Let's put those in and then the demand will follow. And it has certainly happened in London. And we're seeing that there's a lot happening in that area in the UK. A lot of the students, like transport planning students that I kind of teach, uh, master's level or whatever, so many of them are stay in touch with them. So many of them are working on basically walking and cycling enhancement projects. So making it safer to use those modes.
0: And I guess the good thing with the research you've done is that there are policies that are relatively easily implemented that can improve the quality of air.
3: Yeah. So there's little things we can all do as well. So yeah, walking and cycling. Right? So, so making those short trips, just getting in your car, and doing a short trip, half a kilometre, a kilometre, a mile or whatever to the shops and back, right? They're the ones where you probably, your fuel consumption will be twice what it normally is if the engine was warmed up. All the particle filters won't be working properly. They'll clog up. So if you're doing short trips, they're the things like, if you they're the quick wins where, you, you know, walking, cycling, cut out those short trips. If you are going to use a car, use it, you know, longer journeys. Then the more efficient, they're also going to be a lot cleaner. So they're kind of some of the things you can do. I was talking earlier on about how newer vehicles that have kind of been manufactured and people are purchasing now, that they're all a lot cleaner if they're working well. So I think now we're moving to a phase of, yeah, we're wanting the fleet to refresh to cleaner vehicles. But we want to make sure that the vehicles, when they are running there, that they don't have faults. Their particle filters haven't been clogged up or perhaps tampered with to improve fuel economy, for example. So we're looking at policies where we can try and track and identify those vehicles and get those vehicles fixed and off the road.
0: There's obviously so much to talk about here, but what would be good is to hear from each of you, if that's all right, if you were able to change one thing tomorrow morning when you wake up to progress the conversation on improving air quality. What's that one thing starting with you, Jim?
1: Well, I go back to working with the the children at schools because if you can get them into the habit of walking to school, if the kids say they want to walk to school or get on their bike to school, the parents aren't going to say, no, you must get in the car Obviously, the weather has a factor there. So it's actually, you know, getting the getting the children on side because people listen. And we only have to look at Greta Thunberg and the case there, you know, schools for climate. So a lot of it is messaging, you know, so pay, and, and us not talking about micrograms per cubic meter. It's talking about, you know, clean air, dirty air and, and very simple things because a lot of the things we say to people, the light bulb goes on. They can see, oh, that makes sense, which side of the road they walk on. Walk across the park, it's an extra two minutes on your journey, but you're not walking next to cars. If you can't smell the cars, you're away from the pollution. And Kath, what about for you?
2: I'd go back to what I said earlier about carbon dioxide monitors, and particularly in schools. If we can educate people to see the indoor air and to understand their air quality, then people can make a change. But as, you know it's very hard to do something that's invisible and you know I'll give a plug for a project here there's a great project called SAMI which is a project about putting monitors in schools and these monitors are not just to monitor the air quality in the classrooms they're actually part of the educational process in the schools so the kids get to be able to work with these air quality monitors and they can use them as part of experiments in science classes but then they will learn that air quality and ventilation and in their indoor environments are important and that starts to feed through, hopefully, fingers crossed, to the next generation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a thing with both of you there, which is about making that generation realise the importance of it. And finally, James, what about you?
3: I'd really like to get those dirty vehicles off the road now. Right. And, and you can see them and they are illegal. So when you see an old di- well, a diesel van with blue smoke coming out of the back of it, that is against the law. Right. So I'd like to get those vehicles off the road. So yeah, if every well, people, if you get the red warning light comes on your on your car, think about getting it fixed rather than waiting till the kind of getting round to the MOT. But I'd also like to strengthen the MOT test. So the MOT test at the moment is getting quite old and it needs to be updated. We need to be thinking about measuring, which we can do. There's products there, other countries. Are now doing this, where instead of measuring the mass of particles, we just count the number of really fine particles that can get into our deep into our lungs, and it's more aligned with what the manufacturers, the tests that they're having to kind of having to comply with. So, I'd really like to see that MOT test strengthened, and also a bit more surveillance and tracking down and hunting down the vehicles that have clearly got faults on the road i was two and a half but it's it's, yeah. it's, it's
0: okay it's absolutely fine. <laughs> the technology they were exists.
3: links. <laughs> they were links.
0: <laughs> well thank you all so much for joining me on this podcast i'm rich williams and this has been how to fix and hopefully we've shown that although society is facing some huge questions at the moment there are incredible people constantly researching and innovating to help tackle those issues and speaking of the big issues we'll be discussing another one in the next episode
2: how to Fix was presented by Rich Williams and produced by Kasia Tomashevich. The audio producer was me, Jade Bailey, and the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. How to Fix is a Podmasters production for the University of Leeds communications and engagement team.